Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Pro Tips for Musicians podcast. I'm your host, Jim Henry. I'm proud to announce the Pro Tips book is finally available. 50 Pro Tips for Musicians, Practical Advice for an Impractical Business. It contains many of the tips we've discussed here on the podcast, personal insights about each one, and features original illustrations by Ruby Henry. To order your copy today, go to protipsformusicians.com. Funding for this and every show comes from generous listeners who each contribute a small amount every month. Patrons like Eric Giribaldi, Dan Zuckergood, Maria Sangiolo, Dan Tappan, Bob Fishman, Kristen Andrews, and the good folks at Club Passim, The Parlor Room, and Signature Sounds are just a few of the listeners who contribute because they believe in the podcast. This ongoing support makes it possible for me to continue to produce shows. For as little as $2 a month, you can be a part of the Pro Tips family. In return, you'll get access to outtakes, music, and videos not available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash jimhenry to find out more, or to make a one-time only donation, go to protipsformusicians.com. Today on the podcast, we have one of my oldest friends and musical compadres, Craig Eastman. Craig is a remarkable musician and an electrifying performer. His prowess on pretty much any stringed instrument has taken him from the small clubs of Western Massachusetts, where he started playing at age 14, to being an A-list session player in Los Angeles. Craig has a well-deserved reputation as a versatile and sensitive player, fluent in a wide variety of musical styles. His biography reads like a who's who of both music and film industries. He's played and recorded with Ray Charles, Elton John, Willie Nelson, Cheryl Crow, Ricky Lee Jones, Linda Ronstadt, Lucinda Williams, and the list goes on and on. He's written and performed music for films such as Black Hawk Down, Brokeback Mountain, and The Pirates of the Caribbean, where he also appeared on film with Johnny Depp. I'm humbled and honored he was willing to be on the podcast. So let's say hello to Craig Eastman. Hello, Craig Eastman. Hello, Jim. <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing great. Good. Thanks you for uh, doing this. I know you're in the middle of your Irish tour this year, so. Well, anything for you, Jim. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> so I'm um, hoping we can start off with a tune. Yeah. Yeah. How about, uh, well... Seeing, seeing how we're doing this bright and early, how about uh, whiskey before breakfast? Okay, I like it.
Yeehaw! Yeehaw! All right, whiskey before breakfast. Not just a song, <laughs> a way of life. Yeah, it's, it is a way of life, and we learned that back at Hampshire College when we first met. Yes, would you like to tell the story it, it about was, how we met? Sure. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, the details are, are lost in the mists of... Why, have you had whiskey before breakfast today? No, no not yet. It's uh, ginger tea. But it's kicking in. Um, let's see. I believe it was uh, our, our very first day at college, uh, mm-hmm. Hampshire College, uh, uh, a very cool progressive liberal arts college. And, uh, and there was a spontaneous musical event that happened uh in in the commons of the dorms that all this you know there were there were oh, it was out it was outside yeah it was yeah, outside the, there the were quad. lots of uh yeah in the in the yeah the uh, the center part there and 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 uh there were all these different musicians uh you know diff- all these new students that that had arrived a lot of them you know had brought instruments with mm-hmm. them and so there was and 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 you know, no one knew each other, and it was uh, all kinds of different stuff. You know, from from you know guitars and and you know fiddles, and there was a tuba player. Tuba, yeah. There was all yeah. kinds of uh, all kinds of things, and it was a good start. It was probably thirty or forty people At playing, least, playing, yeah, and playing, then, and then a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, it you was know. a it, yeah. That was that was a nice way to start. Yeah, and that's my and, fondest memory of the yeah. <laughs> of the four years there. No, no, no. But that's that that's where we met. We and we've right. been friends ever since. All right. You, I, I was thinking about this that you are probably uh, aside from my buddy Jeff Hofferman, uh, who I met like two years before that. You're yeah. my oldest friend and oldest, certainly my oldest musical friend. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Long time. Yeah. Yeah. So this is yeah, likewise. This, yeah, this is great. I'm glad you could do this. Yeah. So, part of why I wanted to have you on here is you are um, living in LA and doing all kinds of uh, uh, music and music business stuff out there, which mm-hmm. is um, and which is not necessarily involved in the folk Americana world, which is pretty much the sort of the people I've been talking to. Yeah. So it's a whole different way of life and a way of doing music and business out there. So I was hoping we could, you know, sort of pick your brain about sure. that whole scene. So uh, you, you when, when we met, we first met, you had already been playing in country bands and stuff. You had yeah, been doing that for years and, already. And, and actually at the time I was playing in a country rock band, uh-huh. you know, playing uh, – Classic rock and country right. rock of of the day, and and just, uh, so this you when I met you, you were seventeen or eighteen, probably. Uh, I was sixteen when I met you. Yeah, but I just hadn't, you know, uh, at college. Yeah, really. Yeah, <laughs> how'd you do that? <laughs> I, I was accepted in college early, and I I uh, quit high school and and oh, wow. went went to went to Hampshire. I mean, I guess I knew that, but I I, I forgot. Yeah. So you so when did you start actually playing out at, in bars and stuff? Uh, well, I started playing out when I was, uh, probably about 12, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then I started playing in bars when I was, uh, uh, 14. Wow. And, uh, uh, and it was, it was a great education for, for, for sure. And I was lucky enough to have really, really great parents who had this code of, of, uh, letting me do stuff as long as they knew that I wasn't you know, going to get into trouble and, and, uh, you know, hurt myself or, right. Or, uh, or others or others with the high <laughs> notes. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I was lucky to play with a lot of older musicians at the time. Mm-hmm. And there's something really, uh, educational about 
being around uh, at the time. I think there was a lot more general debauchery than than I, I would than I see these days, uh-huh. at least in 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 my world, uh, thankfully. But but just you know, just to be around people doing drugs, you know, getting you know, getting really drunk and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, when you're pretty young and you're totally sober, you know, and and clear eyed, it it kind of uh, uh, it. It, it it it's a good it's a good lesson. Right. Like, oh, it's like, I don't. That doesn't yeah. look that fun. That doesn't look that fun. <laughs> that, yeah, they're not that smart. No. <laughs> um, and and also hearing what it does to people's playing. Right. You know. Um, I remember the uh, the rhythm section at the time was really into doing coke and taking speed. <laughs> oh God. And it was uh, you know you could hear it. Right. You know, and and wasn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. You know, at all. But uh, I have a, I have a buddy. Uh, J.J. O'Connell, who did the podcast too, he's a drummer, and he he won't he loves to drink, but he won't drink on the gig at all ever. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, after the gig, he like saves them up <laughs> yeah. over the course of the night, but he will not drink when yeah. he's playing. Especially with rhythmic stuff, yeah. that's that's where that's where you really really notice it. I mean, you can a lot of times you know fiddle or something, you can get away with it, but, right? But uh, but yeah, it you know any any substance that slows you down or speeds you up, it's not right. gonna. Uh, you know, get you uh, in the, get your soul in the in the right place right. for which is what you need for that. Right. So, so um, I didn't mean to sidetrack you there, but I was. You've had a uh, an interesting career before you even got to L.A. Mm. Right. So, and I know um, I came to see you at one point. I don't know if this was in. It must have been after college, where you were playing in a the road show with Stella. Um, Parton, oh yeah, right, yeah. the best little whorehouse in Texas. Mm-hmm. You were on the road doing that for a while. Yeah, it was a um, a traveling theater show, mm-hmm. uh, you know, starring Stella Parton, who was mm-hmm. just great mm-hmm. and uh, great experience. You know, fifty three cities in three wow. months or something. Wow! And uh, so we went all over the place, and uh, I think I played seven or eight different instruments in the show. Mm-hmm. So I had a bunch of different instruments with me and and uh um you know it was it was it was definitely uh definitely a good uh, i've been dabbling in in multi-instrumental playing for a long time playing you know fiddle is is kind of my oldest instrument that i'd perform with but but uh you know getting you know and i would you know do a little guitar do a little banjo and that sort of thing but then doing um doing you know, high level performance night after night. Um, there's no room for, uh, right. you know, for, uh, kind of, uh, just kind of, you know, getting sloppy or whatever. So, right. so anyway, that was, that was really good. Yeah. And it was fun. And, uh, you know, it's also, it's also a good thing to, to, uh, to do that kind of traveling when you're young. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, I mean, it was really fun at the time. I don't don't know if I could take it now. Yeah, it's pretty grueling. That's a that's yeah, a long it tour. It was. Did fun. she did she have her own bus or was she on the same bus? Yeah, we had we had several. I think we had three or four buses. Right, she had her own bus. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was comfortable. Yeah, we all we all had a we all had a nice nice accommodations and yeah. everything. Let, let's talk about how you how you ended up in L.A. Like you didn't you didn't like have a gig particularly. No, when you moved no. out there, you just um, so what? What? What made you want to go out there in the first place? Uh, Allison Moynihan, ah, <laughs> my, your lovely uh, wife. Yeah, 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 girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. You know when we met, and she, um, 
uh, I met her by chance on an island and, uh, and, and, and fell in love. And uh, she was living in Los Angeles. And I was like, I want to be where she is. So mm-hmm. I, I, uh, we, we waited a few months and uh, I packed up all my stuff and, and drove out. And I didn't, I didn't know anybody in Los Angeles except for her. Mm. I had, uh, you know, I knew people who knew people, sort of, kind of. I probably had, you know, a handful of people that I'd never talked to, you know, you know their numbers and, and, and that sort of thing. It was a grand leap, you know, yeah. leap of faith, sure. go out there. And I'd already been playing a lot, you know, for a long time out here. So I was kind of, I, I already, as far as the skill set of what I did, I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty solid with that. And so when I moved out to Los Angeles, it was great because like a lot of people that moved to California, um, you know, the, it's a great place to reinvent yourself and just, you know, get a fresh start. And having nobody know who I was in, in a lot of ways was really liberating. And it was also really fun because I was, you know, I was well received mm-hmm. in, in general. And uh, I literally went and uh, would look in the paper and see when they were having, you know, different, uh, you know, different types of music that were were being played out there. And there's something going on every day, mm-hmm. you know, there. So I'd I'd go out to clubs and hear hear bands playing and uh, ask you know, go up and try to meet as many people as I could and find out who the, who, who the, the good fiddle players were in town, who, who people liked. And I made a point of searching them out, going mm-hmm. out and hearing them play, uh, introducing myself and telling them that if they ever needed a, uh, a sub, you know, if they couldn't make a gig and they needed a sub, you know, to give me a call and I could do this style and that style. And, uh, and it, it was, an interesting time because some of some of the people were really really business oriented and not friendly at all <laughs> and it was like oh like i was the competition, competition just right. just you know because i'm a musician you know right. and um and i don't think i was really expecting that quite as much uh on the other hand there there were there were a few fiddle players who were really nice uh really welcoming to me and we've we're friends to this day, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and you know I think that's it's you know that 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 sort of thing is is true in general. That I, I think that just philosophically the idea of, of music is is sharing, and mm-hmm. and uh, the musical community we got to help each other out, right. you know, and and want the best for each other, and and so many things when it comes to the basic artistry, I guess. Each each person, I think, has has something unique to, to offer. Mm-hmm. You know, different skill set or a different style of playing, and like different types of things that they do, different instruments, different styles of music, all kinds of things like that. That in in Los Angeles especially, I found that it's a big enough place that that there was room for everybody. Room for everybody. Yeah. I mean there's people who are intensely good classical players and intensely good jazz players and uh you know and then you know indian raga players and, <laughs> and, and, and like the best in the world uh-huh. and it's uh uh and and there are, there are all of these different genres and uh anyway i found i found that to be a really exhilarating thing 
when I first uh, when I first arrived, I would say within a month, I started playing out pretty regularly. You know, doing live shows in in clubs or doing these showcases. That mm-hmm. was a big thing that mm-hmm. that I was doing at first. Um, I met a studio bass player who got me on a recording session, mm-hmm. which was the first one that I had done uh, since getting out there. And and I remember talking to him, asking him, what can I do to, to do more of this right. and do that? And always asking people for advice is, sure. is a great thing and being really nice, you know, and right. respectful and everything. But, but I remember him saying, well, what you're doing is good, but it's going to take five years. <laughs> and I, honest to God, was like, I don't have five years. <laughs> you know, I, I want, I, I'm thinking like, you know, you know, next month or yeah, something. Right. And, you know, and so I, I worked really hard. I went back and I took classical violin lessons, practiced reading music really intensely. I'm a terrible, I've always been uh, not a, a great sight reader at mm-hmm. all, which in the violin world is just like not good. Right. You know, I mean, because because classical violinists especially are notorious for reading anything right you know and uh you know reading paganini and they they play it as good the first time as they're ever going to play it right and and honest to god they do it's, it's <laughs> unbelievable and i would be like okay what's that, and, and, what's that <laughs> what now? are all I'm, these little I'm, dots i'm, I'm, yeah, I'm cl- counting the lines going up and saying well, let's see uh, i know that's the third finger on the e string and, uh but you know, a couple people had really, you know, said that that's really important. Yeah. Um, so, so how's I, your reading now? Uh, pretty marginal, I yeah. would say. Yeah. Um, I'm really good at reading chord charts. Yeah. Uh, I'm really good at improvising. I'm really good at uh, having a piece of music and kind of hearing, hearing parts right. or hearing different options right. for for parts, and. Luckily, I've I've found that um, that that's worked out pretty well for me. You know, I a, do. Do you find that that I mean, do you have, do you ever show up to a session and and the music is written out and you sort of make suggestions or or say, you know what I mean? Try try different things based on your you intuition. Know, it, yeah, it it totally depends on the situation. Uh-huh. Um, usually, people will hire me to 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 come up with a part well either to come up with a part or to have a have a part that they are suggesting and then hear what i right what i would would do right um which i think in general is a really good uh strategy as a composer or a producer is is to hire somebody who you you kind of know what what they're good at what they're playing is what their genre is what their voice as an artist is and then start off by asking them what they would play. Right. And then go from there. You know, either it works perfectly or needs to be tweaked out or needs to be a slightly different part or it needs to be just what they had written out. You right. know, a lot of times having something be a very specific melody line is what's required right. in, in the music. For, for me, you know, I would go into it like thinking I'm going to play the most brilliant thing here and they're going <laughs> to love it. And then I'd play something that I thought was really great, and they're like, "Okay, you know, how how about it, how about if you play, you know, dun 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 dun?" And I was like, "You know, it's it's important to have a healthy ego 
you know, right. going in, going into it. But it's also really important uh, to realize that you're you're collaborating, you know, right. in in the recording process, and so that what somebody else's vision is is the, right. your job is to realize help them realize you know that vision. Right. Of, uh, well, and I think you made a good point too that a, a good producer is going to hire musicians who they know what their skill set is. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes a makes a big difference. You wouldn't want to hire a you know a classical player for a country yeah, album yeah. or whatever. Exactly. Or or vice versa. Right. Uh, if you get the right people, it's really easy. Right. You know, and if you get the wrong people, it's really hard. Right. And you know? and more expensive. <laughs> oh yeah, more expensive. And and the whole idea, I think, it comes back to music. You know, it's it's all about music, and mm-hmm. and it shouldn't sound labored. It shouldn't sound painful. Like, oh man, it's like pulling teeth or whatever. Uh-huh. Even if it's something that has to be recorded, doing punches and and you know doing a few notes at a time to get something that's like kind of impossible to play, uh, it should sound effortless. Right. You know, when you get done, and and hopefully the process is 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 the same way. Right. The best producers that I have worked with uh, try as much as they can to make the person that's playing feel comfortable. Sure. You know that they're supporting them and they're uh, and you know it's like a, a win-win right thing. Um, shouldn't be confrontational. It shouldn't necessarily be. Although I have worked with some great producers that very much do that specifically so that they can get a type of playing out right. of a person, you know, either something that's angry or frustrated or kind of frenetic sounding or, or really vulnerable sounding, you know, that, that can be a, uh, that can be a, 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 a useful thing, especially in film music, if that's right. uh, what it's like. Um, so it was interesting, you know, going back to the, to the five year uh, oh, really? thing, uh-huh. I worked like crazy, you know, preparing and playing as much as I could. And I was, you know, was doing a lot of recording with, you know, on, 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 uh, you know, on people's records and things like that. Um, but was never, you know, never quite as, as busy as I wanted to be and, and not, um, you know, doing, you know, the top, you know, they always say that there's like A level, B level, C level you know, call studio players mm-hmm. and, and, uh, uh, and it was, it was really interesting that, that almost to the day of being five years <laughs> after, you know, <laughs> after having that conversation, all of a sudden things just like totally shifted. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, just the synergy of, of having enough people knowing who mm-hmm. I was and what kind of playing I did and, mm-hmm. and what, what, uh, and then, and then from there, opening up to playing with, um, you know, kind of more um, recognizable names and that sort of thing. And then that becomes kind of a contagious thing if, if, right. if you play with, you know, somebody famous. And right. Then, well, let's and then, get Craig. He played with, uh, you know, uh, Elton John and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Ray Charles. And, and Ray Charles, uh, yeah. All, all, all kinds of people. Yeah. But, and in the film world, I, out of the blue, got got asked to... Uh, record with Hans Zimmer, uh, who's a, you know, I'm not sure how how much your your podcast folks are into film music, but he's a pretty big guy. Yeah, I was been... I wasn't into film music really at all uh, at that time. I didn't even know who he was. Right. 
and uh, he's a he's he's a very big deal. Yeah, in, in yeah. Hollywood, and and things uh, look real quickly kind of took off for me, um, and I was I was uh, producing the music for a TV show, uh, which was kind of a it was the first time I had done something like that, and I got a call in the middle of a studio session where we're you know recording stuff for the show from from Hans asking me to to play uh, Celtic fiddle on a Barry, Le- Barry Levinson movie that he was working on. Oh, wow. And uh, does, does he have an accent? Does Hans have an accent? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's got a very cool accent. <laughs> yeah. Is he German or or, or Austrian uh, or uh, German uh, German but uh, educated in England and Switzerland. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's uh, he's very well spoken. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, he does great interviews yeah. too. He's he's got he's got a, a really great uh, persona as uh-huh. far as that goes. But anyway, he he called up and asked me to play on this um, this thing, and I was really busy. And I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> did you, did you know who he, I didn't know who he was? Oh, no, uh-huh. uh, and I don't think actually I don't think he even said Barry Levinson that it was a Barry Levinson movie because I, I I love Barry Levinson uh, film his uh-huh. films at the time and and at any rate. Um, it was funny because about about ten minutes later, the, uh, the someone called the studio again, and this time it was like it was his agent or something who who said who who said no, you know this he really wants you to do it and and you know and it would be a really really good thing and right. you know and basically they you know said you know just however much you want we'll pay you and and uh, you know and basically like make the time right to do it and uh so so i did i went up um i went up kind of for an audition at his uh, place in malibu where he had a studio you know kind of adjacent to his house that is you know his own personal like work studio thing Mm -hmm. and went up there for an 11 o'clock audition in the morning and left at like four in the morning the, the next day wow i like spent like like i don't know it's like 40 hours or something wow. uh, recording and we uh and it, it worked really well and i ended up playing um i think about a dozen instruments on the on the movie score and uh ended up contributing a lot of the writing to it it was a you know it was a lot of celtic music which is something that i was pretty comfortable mm-hmm. uh you know with the genre and had lots of ideas that sort of thing He's a really busy guy, and he's really smart about taking input from other people, you know, using that and and uh, and compensating him mm-hmm. for it. You know, he uh, he would always give me uh, writing credit, both on screen and through the ASCAP payments and stuff like that. And I really appreciated it. And uh, and it was, and looking back on it, of course, it was a really smart thing for him, good policy, because people were, you know, the best musicians loved working with him because he's able to uh take other people's input and and ultimately you you're valued for it and, mm-hmm. and compensated for it how did he how did he find out about you uh okay why why did you he know he needed was, to have uh, you? a friend right, of a friend who you'd hit the five-year mark and yeah yeah, yeah exactly uh-huh. that's that that's really what it was uh-huh. um, i remember i i actually traced back who it was uh, it was my friend Matt Cartsonis, who who I was was friends with and played with a lot. Who knew somebody who knew somebody at Disney, who was like one of the music supervisors and 
who knew somebody on the film. What was the uh, What was the film? Uh, it was called An Everlasting Peace, P-I-E-C-E, about, about uh, wig salesmen in Northern Ireland during uh-huh. the 80s. Um, and it, it was a, actually, it was a DreamWorks picture, I remember. It was a trip because, <laughs> because you know, the whole process was, was really fun and uh, great musicians. That, and he, he had assembled kind of a house band, including... Heitor Piera, who's a brilliant uh, Brazilian guitarist and amazing composer himself these days, and uh, Martin Tillman, a great Swiss cellist, and and Davy Johnstone, Elton John's longtime band leader guitarist, mm. um, who plays all kinds of different, you know, mandolins and bazookis and things like that. And the film needed to be done pretty quickly. I think we had maybe three weeks to do the whole score. They sort of save the music for the last, don't they? They do. Yeah. yeah. They do the whole everything, and then it's like, okay, we need the music. Yeah, you know, depending on, depending on how well they plan it out. Right. Uh, they, the, but just in the process, uh, the scoring is, is always the last thing to go on because you have to know how long you know, the scene is. And, right. and they're, you know, so through the editing... You know, they have to have the picture edited or locked, they say, you know, before you, you can do the final music. So mm-hmm. you, you're, you know, usually writing stuff, writing themes and have a good idea of, of what it's going to be. But it's usually a real scramble at the end of a project. You know, I remember, you know, driving home at four in the morning after recording, being just in the very early stages or of working on a, a big film score and, and seeing billboards for the, for, the, for the film announcing that it's going to be opening in like, you know, 20 days and we're on reel one and, and, you know, half of it isn't written yet. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, knowing that it's going to be uh, a scramble. Huh. That's one of the one of the big elements of, of doing film stuff and, and even more so with TV. The, the turnaround time is is ridiculously short. And that's a big part of the job description for composers it's got to be quick yeah you got to be quick and you got to make sure that you can get it done that that you're not going to drop the ball well with film they spend a big portion of the film's budget for a big release on the advertisement for Mm -hmm. it so say it's a hundred million dollar movie they'll you know spend tens of millions of dollars on the advertising and the advertising is locked in for a certain date. They have the theaters booked and everything. Mm-hmm. Literally, you're days out from the opening, and and the music is being mixed. And if there are any glitches or or, or anything, it's it's it really comes down to you'll never work again. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, that's not yeah. That's that's part of the job description is is you know making sure to get it done. And that was one of the things that, that Hans was really, really good at, is he had a, um, a, a, a really great organization of resources, of, of great mixers, great engineers. He has his own studio. He can use any time, mm-hmm. you know, as 24 hours a day, which a lot of times would, you know, in the, in the middle of a crunch time like that, would be sleeping in the studio. Having the resources also of, of knowing other composers who you could call in and, and say, okay, we need... Kind of sub out pieces yeah, yeah, of it. Yeah, Now, you did some of that, right, mm-hmm. for, for him? Yeah, yeah, and he was, you know, there, there was so much work involved that he would often, 
you know, say, okay, we need a, a cue that's something like this. Ask people that he knew that could could you know do that kind of stuff to mm-hmm. to work on it. And uh, yeah, so that was that was really great to yeah. be in that. And and I learned uh, learned a, a tremendous amount. I remember when I started off knowing very little about uh, about the film you know the process of, right. of 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 scoring films and recording for that and you know i'd done a lot of of recording of music music like album type recording but it's a whole different thing mm-hmm. um recording film stuff uh, yeah it's really i mean i don't know anything about it but to, you sort of need a a, a a different set of tools right i mean you, you're working a lot with with I mean, the, the, the timing of stuff is really precise. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you use different type of software for that kind of stuff, or, um, or you just have to use Not necessarily. It? I mean, these days, they have different, like, time-stretching uh, software. You can take a piece of music and, say, they decide to recut a scene and make it, you know, make a um, two-minute scene, you know, five seconds shorter. Right. Uh, or longer or something. Right. Um, a lot of times with editing well i mean going you know just with the advent of computers being able to edit things um made it a lot easier back in the days when they were doing the tape you'd have right. to like redo it right. um, from scratch you know and and but yeah you know there there are very specific arcs of like you know it needs to you know have a certain mood until 38 seconds in and then from 38 seconds to 51 second it needs to do this, and then mm-hmm. it needs to change, and uh, so it's it's very much a a, a technical art form, mm-hmm. which which I wasn't really aware to the extent to which it is. Um, uh, it's like someone who's a, a the difference between a really wonderful artist, visual artist, doing painting or or drawing or something like that, creating these wonderful art pieces. To somebody who's who's uh, um, doing advertising or something, mm-hmm. and say, okay, we need you know to look like this and exact like this, and you know, changing things. And so, musically, um, musically, that that was a big a big lesson for me. There were all these all these sides about playing music that growing up performing music, I would. You know, the idea is to play really beautifully or or if it's like a, a flashy song or a high energy song to do something like really amazing and get applause. You mm-hmm. know, that that was kind of, you know, that's that's kind of a sign that you did it right. Right. You know, um, and in the film in, in film music, you don't necessarily want that like hardly ever mm-hmm. uh, because it's uh, it distracts from the. Um, from, right. It's not necessarily the main feature at the at that one any particular moment. Yeah, the the music is very rarely the main feature right. of, of a film, and and a lot of times the most successful film scores, you might remember the the general tune, but there's there are all these other subtle things that you don't even right. recognize, or certainly wouldn't say, oh man, did you hear that? Yeah, right. How they're <laughs> how they're doing the drone, right. you know, and it's. Uh, yeah, it's it's those things that that really make film music um, uh, work. What, so what does that? How does that affect the the mixing part of it? I mean, would you would you take a piece of a, a small you know say a thirty second piece of music 
would you mix it the same way you would mix a regular album or do you, are there are there uh, special considerations yeah there's um well if it's score uh they they, they handled score which is the music that's written for the film um, differently than what they'd call source music. Right. You know, say they get, you know, a Metallica song and they want to put that in the beginning of, you know, right. Mission Impossible. Because that's already mixed. Yeah, they'll they'll have that basically as a, a stereo mix or a 5.1 mix or something. But for film score, generally the way they do it is instead of mixing down to like a regular stereo mix like you would on an album you do what are called stems where you do these little sub mixes that include like say one mix will include the percussion one mix will be the strings one mix will be electric guitar or something uh, if there's a solo instrument you'd put that on a separate stem as well mm -hmm. and you have to mix it in a way that if you put all the stems up say you have six tracks of stems which are each stereo you'd have them so that if you set all the volumes to zero or, you know, at, at unity, Nominal, that, yeah. that, that you play it back and it sounds like what a stereo mix of the, of the cue would be, what you want it to sound like. Mm -hmm. But each one of those things has to be done separately with its own compression, with its own effects, whatever reverbs you use, you put that on each one hmm. separately. Um, the idea is you, you mix the music first and then you... Uh, dub the film and the dubbing process is where they combine the mixed music with dialogue with sound effects and that's usually the the real real crunch time yeah and that's the very last thing yeah and the dub stage for big movies it's really intense it's basically in a in a theater sized control room big screen really loud it's 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 unbelievably loud so you can hear every little thing um and you know huge boards mm -hmm. and usually the very best people are doing it because it needs to be done really well really quickly uh and it's really complicated hi folks sorry to interrupt the show but we'll get back to craig in just a second i want to let you know that these podcasts require an enormous investment of time on my part each show takes about 40 hours to put together. That includes the research, travel, recording, editing, mixing, time to manage the websites, the rewards, and the social media. By contributing as little as $2 a month, you'll be helping me keep the podcast going. Go to patreon.com slash jimhenry, or for a one-time only donation, go to protipsformusicians.com. Every little bit helps. Now let's get back to Craig. I remember being my one of my one of my first real experiences in that world is is that I was um, I was working on a, a Disney remake of the Alamo with uh, Billy Bob Thornton mm -hmm. uh, was playing Davy Crockett and historically Davy Crockett was a fiddle player in real life mm -hmm. uh, and they had written that into the film and they had asked me to write and record the fiddle parts for you know when he would be on screen. And then they they asked me to to teach him how to play, mm -hmm. which was which was a whole other adventure in itself. And I bet it was great working with him. Really, really great guy. But but at one point there was a, a scene that they were working out right before the attack, the final attack. It's at night. Everyone in the Alamo is asleep except for Davy Crockett, and he's he's sitting there while the while the 
you know, saying Anna's forces are creeping up through the woods, through the darkness. He's sitting there holding his fiddle and plucking, you know, just plucking one string over and over again, you know, uh, just kind of, you know, thinking and this whole uh, inevitability, they knew they were gonna get attacked. And, and the director thought that this device of, of having him pluck the string would be really cool. And so, so Billy Bob, when, when they're filming it, you know, was plucking the string, but, but it wasn't being recorded in the proper way. So they called me up at the last minute and said, hey, can you uh, record like, you know, 15 seconds of, of plucking the G string on the violin? I was like, okay, no problem. I didn't have my own studio at the time, so I literally had a room with blankets hung up on it, uh -huh. and uh, <laughs> I went to a quiet corner of it and did this plucking part. Musically, it was perfect, and I sent it into them, and about half hour later, I get a, a call saying, uh, we can hear a leaf blower <laughs> in the background. Oh, my God. You know, that was like a block away from my house, but wow. it was so, and, and in that particular scene, it was really quiet with just the, the plucking. Uh, and they're like, uh, we need you to come down, you know? And uh -huh. so I went down to the, to the dub stage and they have a, a little booth off to the side. Cause there's lots of things, little pickups, yeah. vo right. vocal stuff that they have to grab at the last minute. So we, we did it there, but I got to hear, you know, what my little piece sounded like on these you know huge speakers uh -huh. blasting really loud and they're like yeah there it is oh and there's you know there's a you know there's the chihuahua next door <laughs> you know, it's like, that kind of stuff that's so but, funny yeah anyway so the yeah the mixing is mis mixing is a big a big thing and, and pretty technical yeah 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 and so but now you have your own studio yeah are you still doing stuff for a film yeah, yeah, every yeah, every every now and then. I've been I've been lucky enough to, you know, have been doing that for a long time and you know, I still do uh quite a few films here and there, but I also get more of a chance these days to do what I want musically and be able to play um more album mm -hmm. type stuff. And music, you, you produce some stuff too. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I've been doing a lot of that lately, which I really love. First of all, just working on my own timetable, right. and and it's a lot less of a hassle and right. headache, less and, stressful, probably. Yeah, a lot. You know, so, some of my musician friends, you know, getting ulcers because right. it was so sure. it was so stressful. It's very, it can be very, very stressful. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing that uh, the world of film music how it differs from albums. You know, right, the, the albums are usually pretty joyous. Right. You know, occasions and, uh -huh. you know, expression and everything. You know, there's still a lot of hard work and a lot of frustration that goes into it sometimes, but it's nothing compared to to, to that. Anyway, so I get to do that, and I also get to um, do more traveling mm -hmm. and going out and playing live, playing at festivals and things mm -hmm. like that. Which well, is, that's I, I assume that's really where your love is, is, is playing live. Yeah, you know, I, I, I really love both. Uh -huh. I, I, I do. Um you know, it's it's just really fun. It's really fun playing with you know people. I mean, yeah. we're, we're going to be doing a thing in a couple of days. It's just going to be really fun. Yeah, I really like that. Life is short. Yeah, you know? <laughs> but you know, at the same time, one of the one of the things about film music that is really amazing musically because I I have really diverse musical tastes. 
you can do just about any type of music. A lot of times are called on to do just about any type of music from straight ahead classical to, you know, electronica dance mm-hmm. stuff to, uh, you know, all kinds of different ethnic music from, you know, Middle East or, you know, Chinese, you know, Chinese Arhu or <laughs> all kinds of things like that. And I, I really like that, that idea. And, and also the idea that, that you can play something that, that might involve playing something really quiet and really still that, that just hangs on a couple notes for a minute, mm-hmm. you know, or something that, that if you're listening to an album, you know, or you never hear that kind of stuff on the radio. Right. You know, it's just, and, and it, and it becomes, it's, it's really meditative in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like the wide range of creativity that's called upon in doing film music. And, uh, well, it's, it, you have amassed a, uh, quite a collection of instruments from doing that, haven't you? I mean, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been interested in world music for a long time and mm-hmm. different and different instruments, any in in general, right. like especially stringed instruments for me personally, uh, it's kind of what I specialize in. But um, you have, do you know how many you have? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> lots. Uh-huh. Like I don't know. Yeah, you got tons of guitars. Hun- hun- and- yeah, hundreds. Uh, yeah, we're working on lots of films. I saw it as a great excuse to collect instruments from whatever genre or place in the world a film is taking place in try to get some instruments mm-hmm. you know of that of that type and take lessons on it which mm-hmm. is which is always just amazingly interesting i find mm-hmm. uh and then to try to incorporate those different voices that all these instruments have thinking how they can be used creatively. And I'd say the, the other one big area of film music playing, music, composition, all of that stuff with film music, is to think of the emotional side of music. Like, like say, for example, as opposed to traditional fiddle music, you know, like in, in, in the folk world, mm-hmm. you have a lot of people that would know exactly how you know, the song is traditionally played, wherever it came from, whether it's Ireland or Scotland or whatever, how they played it a hundred years ago, kind of keeping that tradition alive, which is which is a beautiful thing. But in film music, it's all about just what the emotional reaction of the listener will be mm-hmm. to the music. And tradition, the tradition has nothing to do with it. Right. And, and breaking with the tradition a lot of times right. is is the really good thing. You're always, yeah, you're always trying to elicit a specific emotion at a yeah, specific time. Yeah, and it, a lot of times the director won't necessarily have the technical musical knowledge to say, oh yeah, this needs to be a minor flat three. Right. Or or if, you know, that is a minor, but it, anyway, uh, they don't necessarily talk in technical music terms, but they, they talk in emotions, you right. know, and turned out, that for me, I think one of the very best things that prepared me for uh, being successful doing film music was teaching when I was back here, mm-hmm. when I was back in, in Massachusetts. I used to love teaching uh, and specifically teaching people self-expression to feel like the music was coming from inside of them rather than looking at a, a written page 
and them having to like mechanically reproduce what's on the written page right. and almost never actually executing it as well as it needed to be done, especially with, you know, when you're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people, especially in the violin, would find that really frustrating. You know, countless people take lessons and quit because they're not, you know, it's too frustrating. It's hard. And, mm-hmm. and, and what I would try to do was to try to make it as fun as possible and, and to, especially with kids, to give them the sense that the music was theirs. It was coming from inside them mm-hmm. and, the mu- and the instrument was something that they were, you know, was like, you know, just something that was, uh, you know. That, like, a, like a crayon almost. Yeah, you know, just yeah, a, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. And there's all kinds of different ways of sharpening the crayon right. or whatever, but the general, the general concept. And so one, one exercise that I developed early on, actually going to Hampshire College is where I was studying education. That's really what I was working on the most. And, and one of the techniques that I, or exercises that I started working on was the idea of semantics of, of, of what, uh, what the emotional content of an, of a specific type of music was Mm -hmm. and how to teach that. And so what I did is I came up with a, you know, kind of a, a general exercise when a kid would come to a lesson, you know, sit down and usually, you know, kind of you chat for a couple minutes, right. you know, first. And, you know, so I'd say, you know, so, uh, you know, how's your day going? You know, what'd you do? And start to tell me or something. And I'd stop them and say, you know, instead of telling me, uh, <laughs> play, play it for me, uh-huh. you know. And this is something that adults always had a really hard time. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and, and, and especially little kids, especially beginning kids, that couldn't really play would latch onto this thing. And I'd start off with an example of saying, okay, well, what was the first thing you did today? If you're going to describe how your day is going, what's the first thing you did? You woke up. How did you feel when you woke up? And say, for example, you're feeling kind of tired. You know, you're still half asleep Uh when you wake up. Um, (laughs) What does that sound like? Mm -hmm. Are the notes going to be loud or soft? Are the notes going to be fast or slow? Are they going to be high notes in pitch or low notes? Right. Are the notes going to, you know, jump around or are they going to be like kind of in one place and maybe sliding or, or that sort of thing? It would develop this, this kind of a language of what emotions sounded like musically. You know, it would start with something like sleepy or what would happy sound like or what would scary sound like, mm-hmm. you know, and would go from there. So you could literally get a picture in your mind of what it's like. Oh, you're late for school and you're rushing for the bus. What does that sound like? Mm-hmm. Or you're really sad. What does that sound like? It works out really well yeah. for teaching. And, and it also feels like, like you, and there's no right or wrong right. way of doing it necessarily. And through working with kids like that for some years um, before I moved to Los Angeles, when I got to Los Angeles and then Hans Zimmer starts asking me, okay, on this scene, we need this theme played, you know, where it starts off, you know, this way and then, and then it needs to get this way and then this way. And it's, and, and directors, especially a lot of times the directors would be there while we were recording, especially the solo parts. And they would have, they would talk about the scene more psychologically than musically. Mm-hmm. And I found that from the experience of teaching music with this, uh, with this palette of emotions that, that being able to play film music, I could play a melody, the main theme to a movie, I could play that melody 
a hundred different ways. I could play it triumphantly. I could play it as, as I could play it really sad. I could play it ghost-like. I could do, you know, mm. all of these different things of, you know, using the bow really, really lightly. So it's almost like a, a glassy sound. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and, and for film stuff, that's really, really helpful, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to have the music connect emotionally. Right. And Same really... notes, different emotion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh -huh. And, and um, so it's funny looking back on it, that was a, a really big piece that I never, you know, when I was working on it, I had no intention of uh, or expectation of, of using it for right. something like that. Um, well, that you know, just going back to the teaching for a second, that's a that's actually really uh, so simple but so brilliant. It's like the music's inside you; it's not on the paper. Oh yeah, yeah, that's genius. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's so simple, but it's it's very true. And yeah, yeah people get often get caught up in looking at the looking at the paper, and they they're yeah they're not internalizing yeah. the music. Not only really that, but people who are. Um, Singers covering another song. So many people start off covering other people's great songs, which is a really, really good mm -hmm. way to, to learn how to write good songs or record good yeah. songs. The expression, you know, they do a song and then they make it their own. Right. You know, that's like you can do to, to be able to cover somebody else's thing, but put your own emotion right. into it, make it real for yourself. That's, right. uh, that's, that's, a, a, that's, all, that's always the goal, really. It's not necessarily as obvious, though. I think a lot of people uh, would start off wanting to sound like, you know, that the what the original right. recording that they're going off of would be, it, which has spawned a whole generation of people who who sound. I mean, what you hear on the radio now is very. Uh, it's like super compressed and and loud, and there's not a lot of dynamics to it. So I think a lot of singers are kind of singing like that yeah. now, oh, which yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, it just makes me cock my head a little bit. It's like, that's, that's, it kind of hurts. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, me, the world is incredibly imitative yeah. anyway, uh, you know, and, and that's the way, that's, you know, that's, there's, there's a reason for that. I mean, we, we each have to learn everything from scratch, right. you know, from when we're born. It's, uh, you know, nothing is, is pre-programmed. So that's one of the things I love about music is everything that we do we're standing on the shoulders of others who right. figured it out from standing on the shoulders of other people and back through time and, right. and all, all the different elements of music, no one's inventing them from scratch. There are, you know, the rhythm, rhythm, harmonies, melodies, all of that stuff has been a big part of the human development. Well, there's an interesting question then. Are we born, since music comes from within us, are we born with it? I think so. Yeah, I think I, it's. I, I I think so. Um, and we're getting we're getting philosophical now, but <laughs> yeah, I I do think that that um, I think that there's all kinds of different types of intelligence that different people have, whether mm -hmm. it's you know being brilliant at math or being a compassionate healer or being um, you know whatever it is teaching you know mm -hmm. um, that I think that. It's it's really hard. It, people tend to want to kind of classify with standardized testing and everything like that. Standardize what mm -hmm. what what things you need to learn and how you need to learn them and how you have to execute them. Taking violin lessons is a perfect example of that. Say the Suzuki violin method. I just met someone the other day, a little kid, and I was like, you know, so what you playing? She's like, 
well, I'm halfway through book two. <laughs> you know, it's like that in her language, in her world right. of playing with other kids, that's how they describe it. Right. You know, are you on da 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 da? You right. know, book two, and, and right. that's how they did, would describe it. You know, I I think that the music that I most like that that really resonates with me is less about the notes and more about just the the soul of the person you were describing playing at that doc watson festival mm -hmm. the other day mm -hmm. and doc watson for me is is a musician that you you hear two notes and you can tell it's him. oh yeah you know it's just you know how many you know millions of people pick up a guitar and play those two notes and it and it sounds totally different mm -hmm. and and then you can hear steve Vai play those two mm -hmm. notes and you know it's him yeah you know or you know you 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 know, if you know his music, you could you could right. tell for sure. So anyway, I I I am a big fan of uh, kind of unique expression. In mm -hmm. that, to me, that's that's been kind of a kind of a goal. Uh, and a lot of times for the studio work that I would do, playing on other people's records, sometimes that's not what they're what they're looking for. Right. Sometimes they're looking for it to sound like the last you know <laughs> country radio hit, right. and they want that like style solo uh -huh. and that tone and and all of that which is fine but i tend to uh for for myself have tended to focus more on on trying to come up with 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 my own right you know kind of uh voice i guess right you know not that i don't you know put 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 that on hold when when i need to but um well, yeah that's the first that's the first uh instinct yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's hard to do that when you're beginning, for sure. I yeah. Mean, just to have the facility on an instrument and also have an opportunity to do it, because a lot of times you're wanting to play something that sounds like, right? You know, something else. So. You know, I had a, I was at a, I was at a party last night, and there was a jam there. It was all professional musicians, so it was really good, really high quality. And we were playing, we, we were playing something, and I'm just just playing a little rhythm guitar behind what was going on, and I just had a moment thinking, you know. The, it, I, I was so glad to be able to do it. Just, you know, like when I was younger and wasn't able to do it and wished I could do it, I was like, a part of me felt like I had arrived. Yeah. You know, which was, you know, at this point in my life was a, was a really cool feeling. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, those arriving, uh, arriving moments are, are really good. And it's good to acknowledge them, too. Yeah. It's real easy under the best circumstances. I've been very lucky. But I'm still like very much expecting for new and, and exciting things to happen, yeah, you know, that do come up, but you never quite know when they're gonna right. come or how they're gonna come. And uh, it's just really important to experience them along the way. Like we had, you know, we, we played together in, in our band, The Sum Dogs, mm -hmm. years ago. And that, some of those moments, are the happiest some of the happiest mm -hmm. moments I've ever had playing music. Mm -hmm. You know, it was exciting. It was like the band was sounding really good. People loved it. People were, you know, the dance floor would be full. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it was like, you know, coming from for me, coming from playing for square dances, the idea of playing a hybrid type of fiddle music that wasn't traditional and having people respond the way they were responding was just like, oh, this is just great. This was kind of yeah. what I was dreaming about. You know, and it's uh, those uh, those moments. It's good to, good yeah, to it's good it. to acknowledge them. And you know, there's not a lot of them. You know, really, for for me, I mean, there's a few. I mean, there's a few moments in my life where 
where when I'm playing music where time stands still and literally it's like being one with the universe. I mean, I've had a, a you know a fair amount of them, but not a lot of them. So when they do occur, like last night was like out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't have to be like oh my god, I'm Carnegie Hall. You know, yeah, no, it's it just like be, this is it awesome. It could be in someone's basement. Yeah, and and in, uh, in fact, a lot of them are. You know, those moments are that's where they happen. Yeah. So I've been really lucky. Part of it being being in a city where there's you know stuff going on like all the time. I've gotten to play with lots of, you know, people who are like kind of heroes of mine. Mm -hmm. Those moments, you know, just going into them, you know, are just like, oh, this is going to be cool. I remember getting to play with Ray Charles mm -hmm. and we ended up just the two of us alone in a room and he sat down on the piano and started playing, you know, and he was, he was showing me how he was envisioning my fiddle part uh, for the for what or the song we were working on, and like I was saying before, of having somebody do what they think they want to do first, mm -hmm. um, that's what he did. He had mm -hmm. me do three passes on the song as an overdub. Listen, you know, listen to them all, and then he said, "Follow me." And it was it was in his uh, his own personal recording studio that he'd had since fifties in mm -hmm. Los Angeles, and and. It was great. It was like green shag carpeting and, <laughs> and uh, white pegboard on the walls. It uh -huh. was like, you know, it's like he doesn't care if it's yeah. remodeled or, or anything. <laughs> he, he would listen to things standing behind the mixing board. Like if you're normally an like engineer. Like where the speakers are kind of. Yeah, an yeah. engineer would sit there and, and reach in front of them, you know, and the speakers are pointed at them. Ray would stand behind the mixing board with the speakers on either side of him pointing away from him as if he was, you know, had a band behind him. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the way it worked. He, it was, I mean, they, you know, people describe him as a genius really is on so many levels. What I, the first thing that really caught my attention was he was like, uh, he, he, he was like, um, he's listening, listening to the playback and, and, and the part we were working on was, was a call and response thing with with me playing fiddle and 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 doing responses to Slash's guitar solo. Mm -hmm. Like he would, he had already recorded his solo and and so the idea was you know to to have us be interacting like that. And and so Ray's listening to it and he's like uh Slash is on uh Slash is on track 32, right? And and the engineer says, "Yeah." Ray reaches over without having you know, without, you know, having someone show it where it was, finding, you know, channel 32 and tweaking the EQ. <laughs> like, like I need a little more mid-range on, on his guitar, uh -huh. you know, and, and he reached over and, you know, hundreds of, of buttons on the mixing board. That's know, amazing. Big, big mixing board. <laughs> and and he, he was talking about being hands-on and, you know, to do it without seeing it. It was, yeah. it was just amazing. Uh, so, so he listens, listens through a couple times and he's wearing a silk suit. Uh -huh. you know, it's just like, oh man, <laughs> just chain, how you want him to look. He's chain smoking cigarettes, <laughs> you know, and he's smoking them with, um, with the, you know, like the, 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 the lit part of it, hold, holding it between his thumb and his index finger, holding it so that the lit part was like closer to his, his hand. Palm, yeah. Yeah. Kind of by, uh -huh. by that. And so he could kind of feel when they were getting down, and he would drop 
when he would, he would smoke them down, he'd drop it on the floor and step on it, <laughs> which I just couldn't believe that he had <laughs> gone through his life not burning himself oh, no in every place down doing uh-huh. that. But that's what he did. And so he, he so he listens to these three takes and then says, um, says, you know, here, come with, come with me. Get your fiddle and come with me. So I follow him, and he's walking by himself. He knows the studio really well. So, so we walk we walk into you know his keyboard rooms where he's got all of his keyboards. He's got all of his you know different. Uh, he's got a you know the grand piano, and he's got all the organs and clavinets and everything. Um, but he sits down at the grand piano, and it's a I remember it's a Steinway with. Uh, with all kinds of, you know, pianos that are really used. They were like scratch marks uh-huh. on the, I forget what you'd call that part, at, right at the, at the um, uh, against where the, the uh, it's like the underside of the cover. If you pick oh, up yeah. the cover that goes yeah. over the keys. Anyway, you hit, you sometimes would hit that with your fingers and his was like all, all scuffed up. Uh-huh. It, was, it was really cool looking. And, and he sits down. And there it is, a grand piano, and there's this guy, and and then he started to play, and it was just like, oh, it was like it is like my universe exploded. Uh-huh. That, that it it was I never heard s- such a sound uh-huh. come out of a piano, and it was like so deep, you know, just him playing, you know, playing a couple chords, and 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 he played the. And it was bigger. It was like bigger than the guy and bigger than the instrument uh-huh. alone. It was like when they came together, it was just unbelievable. And he, instead of instead of telling me, you know, uh, what what he wanted me to play and verbally telling me, okay, could you do more slides or you could play behind the beat or play right. more, you know, chordal stuff or something. He instead of telling me with words, he played it for me mm-hmm. and 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 started playing the song with a really, really heavy gospel uh, you know, slant to it, more gospel than the recording was. Uh-huh. But that's you know, but it was his way of of producing how I, you know, was gonna be playing the track. Uh-huh. But anyway, just sitting in the room playing with him was just like one of those moments. It was just like Oh, oh my yeah, God. make you dizzy. <laughs> oh, it was just—it was just wonderful. I mean, talk about feeling out of body experience. Yeah, that's awesome. One of those. There was another time when I was recording with Ricky Lee Jones, uh-huh. one of my a big fan for a really long time. Uh-huh. She wanted me to layer some violin parts to add like a string section to a song, and but she didn't have it written out, and it was like, it was like taking too long you know, being out of the moment for her to like, you know, write it down or, or something. She came into the studio or into the, into the, into the room where I was recording, had some headphones on and had me take one ear off of my headphones while I was recording violin. And she would hum the parts that she wanted me (laughs) to play in my ear while I was recording them. And and the harmony parts, and she's she's like a harmonic genius. I think uh, some you know her harmony sense is is really cool. Yeah. So so the harmonies that she was singing were not what I would have immediately uh-huh. you know jumped on to to play. But it was just like while we were doing it, I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is 
this is something. Yeah, let, let's <laughs> remember this. You can't make this shit up. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, well, let, you know, I gotta. Uh, I want to do this thing that happens on the podcast sometimes. I okay. didn't warn you about this. Okay. This is called the either or game. I'm going to give you two sets of words or, or phrases, and you have to choose one or the other. Like you have to deal with it for the rest of your life. I, I do? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You have to. All right. Let's, All right. Sorry. Let's do this. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, you, like, you have to deal with it for the rest of your life, one or the okay. other. Okay. Yeah. These are hard. Some of these are hard. Ready? Uh, I, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Dog or cat? Dog. That wasn't so hard. Window or aisle? Window. Irish or bluegrass? Oh, shit. Yeah, I know. Mm. They're, they're just harder from now on. Uh, rest of your life. Oh, shit. Irish. Less, less, rest of my life. Yeah. I rest mean, of your life? It has to be less. Yeah. yeah okay. Oh, that, oh, I get it. So it's, it's, you know, you have to live with You have to live with it. Yeah, you only get one or the other for yeah, the rest of your yeah, life. Irish. Irish. Yeah. Okay. Jameson's or Knob Creek? Jameson's. Click track or no click track? Rest of your life. No click track. No click track. No click All track. Right. Uh, club or theater? You can do tempo maps now. <laughs> so that's good. Club or theater? Club? Club or theater? Or theater. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would, yeah, probably, I mean, considering the rest of your life, you're going to get old probably you know probably theater would be okay <laughs> look at you being all practical yeah they have, <laughs> they have wheelchair ramps <laughs> uh fiddle or mandolin fiddle fiddle no question light or medium mm. for what instrument well i all it says is light or medium here on this paper <laughs> oh, oh. uh medium medium Okay. I always use medium. Yeah, you go for anyway. tone there. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Cal- go for volume. For volume. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, California or Massachusetts? Rest of your Wait, life. Wait, who's making these <laughs> things up? I try and tailor them specifically yeah. to the guest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what time of the year? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, there's no, you know, there is no right or wrong answer. Oh, jeez. I, I get a pass on that one. Okay. I can't. I, I, I can't. All right, well, this one you have to, you're not going to like it. You're going to have to choose Kenny Baker or Vassar Clements. Uh, well, forever, I'd have to say Vassar. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, as, as, as much as I love Kenny Baker's <laughs> playing, Vassar is, yeah. uh, is a whole, that's what we were talking about before. I mean, Kenny Baker, you can tell it's Kenny Baker right. from his tone all, all the time, but you can tell the notes you know, there's there's tone. There's every right. it, it, Vassar's uh, Vassar's playing just was like, you know, so open. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. You. You. Yeah. You sort of you have some uh, Vassar in yeah, you. Yeah. He was yeah. my he was my hero. Yeah. You know, and I I I one of the the guys I get to play with a lot these days is John McEwen from right. the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, who was also a big Vassar fan, uh-huh. and you know, and did the Circle Rest record with Vassar mm-hmm. and, and traveled with him a lot and. One of the things that makes playing with John really fun for me is, is uh, you know, having grown up like learning Vassar stuff like note for note and and just idolizing you know his playing to to be able to uh, 
to kind of quote Vassar, you know, when we're, we're mm-hmm. in the middle of a set doing something, I usually will throw in a Vassar riff here or there. And, 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 and John just like looks over and smiles because he knows, because <laughs> right. he, he gets it. It's kind of right. like, you know, it's like the little visitation, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up this Pro Tips for Musicians let's, podcast. Let's, let's take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, uh, thanks for coming in and doing this. Anytime, John. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, so let's play a tune that we, we will use for the outro music. Okay. All right. And I asked you to bring your mandolin. Let's uh, let's do the two mandolin thing. Uh, do uh, Mandomania. Mandomania. The uh, the Saint Andrea. What the do you Saint think? Saint Andrea. Okay. Sure. I know that one. Yep. listening to the Pro Tips for Musicians podcast. To find out more about Craig, visit him online at craigeastman.com. To order your copy of the Pro Tips book or to make a one-time only donation to the podcast, go to protipsformusicians.com. To become a sustaining podcast patron, go to patreon.com slash Jim Henry. Thanks for listening. <laughs>